From the city of Beaky Blinders, Birmingham, England, I would like to introduce you to Paddy Dandar. As the world becomes more automated and the robots take over, it's imperative that we build the right human skills for the future. So pull up a chair, grab a smoser or two, and make yourself very uncomfortable. Hey folks, thank you for joining us for another episode of the Superpower School podcast. I'm your host, Paddy Dander, and on today's episode, I have an expert in his field. He is the professor of story science at the Ohio State Project Narrative. They are the world's leading authority on stories. So, Angus Fletcher, welcome to the show. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here, Patty. Ah, you know what, Angus, I'm really excited about this episode because... Just before we kicked off, you and I were talking briefly and you said, Paddy, I'm going to be talking about stuff which is a little bit controversial in that it's not the same thinking as everyone else on this subject matter. And you talked about you're against play, you're against divergent thinking, and straight away I was hooked. So I'm so interested to know more about some of those topics. But first of all, what is the superpower you'd like to bring to this particular episode? I'd like to bring a superpower of human intelligence, as distinct from most of what we're taught in school today, which is essentially a version of computer intelligence. Got it. Okay. Wow. That's a hell of a superpower. So I'm really interested to know what we're going to go into on that topic. But before we do that, could you tell us a little bit about your background? So I'm a professor at Ohio State. My background is ultimately in neuroscience, but I work on story. And the main thing that I'm known for is about a year or so ago, I published a book in which I pointed out that the way we think about story is basically backwards. We think about story as a way of communicating. And that leads us to think about it as a way of marketing and persuading people. But actually, story is the way that our brains think. And we know that it's the way that our brains think because stories are so incredibly communicative. They wouldn't communicate so effectively if that wasn't the way that we think. And so then we have to say, why do we think in story? Why does our brain naturally think in terms of plans and plots and characters and actions and events and all these things which are story? And that's because over hundreds of millions of years, the brains evolved to realize that's a deep form of intelligence. And so what the book I published last year does is it says, stop worrying about the stories you're telling other people and think about the stories you're telling yourself. And I trace the neuroscience behind 25 different stories you can tell yourself and how those stories are going to increase your brain performance. Oh, and what's the name of the book, Angus? Just so that if anybody's interested in getting a copy. It's called Wonderworks. And in the United States, it was out on Simon & Schuster. And I believe in the UK, it's out on Swift. And if you want me to pump the book, it was called My Glowing by Malcolm Gladwell. And it's been endorsed by a ton of major neuroscientists and psychologists and doctors. Fantastic. And so going back to the institute where you work, you said they are the leading institute for stories. So could you just elaborate on that a little bit for me? Yeah. So no one has ever heard of Ohio State's project narrative outside of the tiny academic community in which I work. And that community is known as narrative theory. And narrative theory is the formal study of stories. And most people in narrative theory got their start studying literature. I got my start actually when I was at Stanford and I started working with Pixar and kind of the entertainment industry and kind of how movies work. And one of the main things that we believe is that the way that story is taught now is totally wrong. So if you go to a standard class on story, they'll tell you that there are certain structures for stories or certain right ways to tell stories like the hero's journey or there are archetypes and you should use these archetypes. 
This is totally against science and biology. Story evolved in the human brain as an adaptive process for coming up with new plans and actions. So being able to respond to unexpected circumstances. And what that means is that story is incredibly adaptive, flexible, original. All of us have our own story and all of us have the capacity to make up new stories. And so what we do is we go deep into the brain and identify those mechanisms that help you generate new stories. And those stories, the stories that not only power your life in terms of the futures that you can imagine, but that also help you make sense of what has happened to you and your past and your history of who you are and what makes you unique. So that's kind of the work that I do. And a lot of that, as I said, touches on neuroscience and psychology, but also literature, the arts, Hollywood, and more recently business and, and the special operations community in the United States Army. Wow. That's a very diverse set of groups that you've been working with. And in terms of then those structures, and hey, I did a talk on this recently, and I used exactly those structures that you've just talked about there, about the hero's journey, et cetera. So I'd be really intrigued to know, is there an alternative structure or is there no structure? There's no structure. There's a process. Structure is the myth. <laughs> so structure is how computers think. They think in terms of eternal right and wrong and archetypes. And because our world has become addicted increasingly to computer thinking, we think that there are these absolute truths. Life is about a process of adaptation and reaction. And that's because we evolved in changing landscapes and we ourselves have to change who grow. The reason that I work with special operations is because the primordial state of life is a state of war and war is asymmetric conflict. It's you figure out how to do something. And then the moment you figure out how to do it, your enemy figures out how to do it better. And then you have to change. And this is actually how life works for all of us. Even when we're not in a state of war. If we're a business, we're constantly having to evolve against our competitors. If we're in any sphere of activity, we're constantly having to evolve technology and constantly evolving. And so you want to get out of the thought of structure and that there's a structure. I mean, if we taught structure and engineering, we would still be doing the wheel. No one goes into an engineering class and learns structure. What we do is we learn process. We learn how we problem solve. What is the process of problem solving that allows us to innovate and change and evolve? And it's only in storytelling that we have this incredibly archaic idea that there are these fixed structures that we all have to learn when in fact we have a much more dynamic power in our brain. I think I've got it. I probably haven't got it because I'm just not as smart as you, Angus. So I'm still trying to catch up in my brain. So if I was a student coming to one of your sessions, somebody who's really interested in stories and storytelling and wants to get some takeaways that I can then use practically in my day-to-day -day work, what might you tell me that's going to help me in that particular goal of mine? So let me give you a kind of an overall method and I'll give you a specific example. So overall, what you have to think about is story is a tool for accomplishing something. And every job has its own specific tool. You don't use a hammer to solve every job. So you have to say, what am I trying to accomplish in this specific instance? Am I trying to encourage empathy? Am I trying to encourage curiosity? Am I trying to encourage love? Am I trying to encourage a sense of healing or processing grief? What am I trying to accomplish? And then I want to work backwards from that to build the specific technology or structure that I'm going to use in this instance for this audience. So simple example, I told you that I kind of got my early start working with people at Pixar, the movie Up. Wonderful, innovative movie does not follow a traditional structure. If you try and diagram what happens in Up, you very quickly lose your mind because it's very distinct. But what's the point of Up? The point of Up is to take you up. 
So how does the movie start? Well, if you've seen the beginning of Up, you know that Up starts by taking you down. <laughs> it has a very sad, emotionally effective, affecting beginning. And so by taking you down, it makes it easier for a story to then take you out. So that's just a very simple example. And one of the great things about Up is that the ending was created first and the beginning was created last, which is in general the way you should build a story. You want to work backwards from what you're trying to accomplish to the actual structure that you choose. And Up is the one with the balloons and the house flies up. So I wasn't aware of that. I had no idea they'd actually built that movie in that order. If I'm giving a presentation and I want to build some buy-in into my ideas, I'm trying to articulate a concept and I would love for the people or the audience to buy into my idea, then how might I go about that then? What might be some of the things I could do there to get them to trust me, build credibility in what I'm saying? First of all, you have to understand that there's not a magic way that you can compel and sway people. I mean, I think this is one of the myths of modern communication that somehow humans can be controlled. And we actually have this deep anxiety out there that we're all being controlled. Human beings are very free thinking. But the number one thing is if you want to build trust with an audience, you have to be honest. And to be honest, that means you have to reveal something about yourself, which is difficult to reveal. So you have to start by saying, if I want them to trust me, I have to trust them. And that means I have to do the difficult work of saying something that is hard for me to acknowledge in public. And so I would want you to sit down as a very first step and say, what is something difficult for me that causes me a sense of discomfort, embarrassment, or maybe even shame? How can I figure out how to put that into my talk as a way of showing my audience I'm willing to make myself vulnerable to you? So that's how you would build trust in terms of how you would build credibility. You would show the audience that you had anticipated their objections. That's the best way to build credibility, not to get up there and list all of your own sort of triumphs and significances. It's to get up there and say, I actually know what you're thinking. You have this concern in your mind. This is what you are saying is a problem. And I'm going to tell you, well, I'm going to answer that problem. Before you even raise concern, I'm going to answer it. That immediately builds credibility because that shows your audience that you're thinking one step, but that's known as effective plotting or planning. So... Those are two totally different techniques, and you can see why you could conceivably try and include both of those in the same talk, but they don't necessarily fit that organically together, certainly not in a short talk. And that's why the first thing you have to do when you sit down to do a talk is say, what's my number one priority with this talk? And then I have to say, once I hit that, I have to trust that my audience is going to come back to hear me for my second talk. And then my third talk, don't try and get it all done in 30 seconds. You're never going to build a lasting connection with your audience that way. Could you share some interesting examples of how you've helped some of the other organizations you were talking about there you, that you've worked with? What have been some of the challenges they've had to overcome and how have you been able to help them? So a lot of my work right now is with the U.S. Special Operations community. And the main challenge the U.S. Special Operations community deals with is it just gets given the problems that no one else knows how to solve. Right. So basically, and I should say this, I'm someone who has no background in the military, never thought that I would end up working with the military. And actually, even though I have an American accent, I was actually born in the UK. I was a British citizen and came here to America and became naturalized. So I'm not a kind of patriotic, rah-rah American. But what I discovered is that the way that the military works in this country is basically if the public has a problem, they give that problem to the government. And they say to the government, please solve our problem for us. And then the government looks at the problem and says, this is really hard. I'm going to give it to the military. 
And then the military says, all right, this problem's really hard. I don't need to give it to special operations. And so special operations basically gets dumped with all these really hard problems that no one wants to solve. And that means that they have to be able to figure out how to solve problems that don't have answers. So they have to be able to figure out how to take intelligent risk. And that is something of an oxymoron in most people's minds. How do I take an intelligent risk? But the remarkable thing about the human brain is that's what the human brain evolved to do. The human brain evolved to take intelligent risks because the human brain knows that life is always changing. And so built into it is a sense that it has to always be thinking for the future. And to think for the future means you always have to be doing things that are not necessarily efficient in the present. You have to be imagining and you have to kind of be gambling a little bit. And so a big part of the challenge that I work with organizations based on what I've done with special operations is simply that emotional shift. We, in our modern world, now have this idea that somehow if you have enough data, you can just make the right decision. And so people are out there just trying to gather lots and lots of data, and then they're looking at the data, and then they're just having intelligence paralysis because there's too much data for them to process, and the data is very fragile. It keeps changing over time. And you have to take back sets of initiatives. And instead of looking to data, you have to say, okay, how am I going to move this situation? How am I going to impact the situation? And then what am I going to give myself as markers to know that my actions are having the effect that I want? And so I work with organizations in making that emotional shift and laying out those initial plans and then saying, here are the markers. If we hit them, we know we're having the right effect. Rather you than me. That's a hell of a job you've got there, I guess. So in terms of some of the research then that you've come across, I mean, you've got very strong opinions on some of the topics that we've been talking about. Is there research that you have come across that has really influenced your thinking here? And if so, could you give us some more insight into that? So I have been known over the last year as someone who does creativity and trains creativity. This is not a field that I expected to end up in. I got drawn into it accidentally. And the reason I stayed in it is because I think so much of the previous research in it is very questionable. So what happened is after I published that book explaining how you could tell yourself these stories to change your performance, I got contacted by some leading business schools. One of them was University of Chicago Blue here. And I was asked to help train entrepreneurs to make themselves more creative. And so I started reading a lot of the creativity literature and what he was emphasizing was things like divergent thinking, design thinking, brainstorming, all these kinds of things. And I immediately noticed two things. First, the science has shown that none of this really works very well. <laughs> There's just a ton of data out there. Stanford Business School has published a study recently, which sort of shows why divergent and design thinking doesn't work very well. It has very limited returns. And second of all, we know that computers can run these processes much better than humans. Computers are much better at brainstorming. They're much better at divergent thinking than humans. Have computers suddenly become more creative than humans? No, they have not. Computers are incredibly not creative. And that's because all of these ideas about creativity come to us out of logic. And according to logic, there's only two ways to create something. Either through logic, so using analogical reasoning and things like that, or through randomness, which is what brainstorming is. And logic says that you either just kind of flail around randomly, which is called divergent thinking, and then you use convergent thinking to logically select which ideas are going to work. No human creative works this way. 
No human creative works randomly. Every human creative has their own method. And that's a method that we can trace back to childhood and the brains of children and how children work. And so what I've done in my own research is I've gone back and I've worked with successful creatives and I've worked with children and I've identified the similar brain processes that both have in common. And then we just work with people to train up those muscles in the brain. And those muscles in the brain are things that could not exist in computers. Computers mechanically cannot perform these functions because they're not logical, nor are they random. And by training up those brain processes, you just see over time that you not only become more and more creative, you become more creative in your own way. So you develop your own distinct voice and your own distinct style, which is ultimately the mark of creativity. It's specific, not general and universal. Divergent thinking is seen as almost the secret sauce for a lot of companies. It's about, let's get the whole team to come up with lots of ideas. And then what we're going to do is we're going to pick the best ones. And so we're converging on those ideas. And you've just flipped that on its head a little bit. And I'm just imagining a fair few people who are listening to this episode who have been brought up with those concepts will be almost uh, doing somersaults because (laughs) me included in a way, because this is the sort of stuff that I think a lot of productivity coaches, uh, creatives out there would be advocating. So let me just say a couple of things. First of all, we just know it doesn't work. So this isn't me saying this. There is over 20 years of research showing that it doesn't work. And that's why these productivity coaches have such a hard time getting traction, is they're trying to train something that everybody in these companies knows doesn't really work. It, it shows no empirical gains. And this has led to this myth that somehow creativity is innate, that some people are just born geniuses and all these kinds of things. Let me give you a specific example of why it doesn't work and how you could do something different. So here's what a classic brainstorming exercise looks like at a company. I come in with a whiteboard. I say, I'm going to write some challenges that we're facing on the whiteboard, and I'm going to write some opportunities that we have on the whiteboard. And then I ask us all to kind of brainstorm a bunch of ideas that we have so that we can solve these challenges and take advantage of these opportunities. The moment that you put a challenge or opportunity on a whiteboard in front of the human brain, it activates its hope and its fear. The moment you activate the human brain's hope and fear, it radically narrows its sense of the possibility space. And it says, okay, I have to do something that aligns with one of my hopes or one of my fears. Now, it turns out that only about 1% (laughs) of the things that you hope or fear for are actually likely to occur in the future. And so that means you're shutting off the other 99% of all the possible worlds that could be out there. You think of all the negative things that have come up in your life that were things that you were afraid of. They usually surprised you in an unpleasant way. And you think about all the world things that came into your life that you weren't expecting, you know? So you have to remove yourself from this whole idea of brainstorming in response to specific challenges and opportunities. And what you have to do is you have to get yourself out of your hopes and fears and start to build up those muscles outside of the specific concerns of your organization. So one of the things that I do a lot with our teams is I work with what we call kind of mission adjacent problems. So if you have a company that has two divisions, I take the team from one division and focus them on the problems of the other division and vice versa. And that way you're focusing on a bunch of problems that don't directly impact your own career or your own success. So you have no hopes and you have no fears around them. And that opens up your sense of the opportunity space and you start to be able to access more of your brain's natural processes. And so that's a very simple thing, but that just gives you an example of why brainstorming is from the very beginning, not going to work. 
I'm just thinking about all of the sports fans that often throw abuse at the team and say, hey, if I was managing the team, I would do things differently. And in my mind, that's almost similar to what you're saying there because their skin's not in the game. They're able to be a little bit more creative and have a different perspective. But actually the coach knows their skin's in the game and their neck's on the line. So they may think slightly differently to everyone else. So there's that risk issue. Absolutely. It's causing the coach to kind of turtle is the term I would call, you know, they, they turtle. The main way you see this in your own life is when you give advice to your own friends. You're much better at giving advice to your own friends than you are giving advice to yourself. And you're much less able to follow, you know, that kind of imaginative advice than you are to give it. Why is that? Because you just feel too invested. And so a lot of the work that we do is just that emotional work of unseating yourself from your problems so that you can come back to them feeling empowered from a different perspective. And, you know, I'll give you another example of how the training is different in terms of convergent thinking. So as we talked about, the way that companies work now is they brace from a whole bunch of ideas and then they use convergent thinking to identify what they consider to be the best idea. And this is the application of logic to window or screen all the ideas. What that does is that immediately reintroduces expert bias into the system. <laughs> and you basically throw out all these ideas because they seem illogical to you. Guess what? Logic cannot determine whether a genuinely creative idea is going to work or not. The only thing that can determine whether it's going to work or not is by trying this. You can't guess in advance whether a creative idea is going to work or not. And you could, creativity would be a lot easier. So you have to totally junk the idea of convergent thinking. And instead, what you have to do is you have to say, I'm going to take a risk assessment. What is the volatility that I'm dealing with? If I'm dealing with a high volatility situation, that I have to pick an idea that is also highly volatile, or that I have no idea if it's going to work. If I'm in a low volatility situation, then I'm going to pick a low volatility idea that I have confidence could probably work. And so this is all about matching your response to the situation, as opposed to using logic in advance. Because again, when you use logic in advance, you do just what you're talking about with sports coaches and you turtle. You say, oh, this couldn't possibly work, therefore I'm not going to try it. And one of the ways that we know that people become more creative is when they try an idea out of the gate that's aggressive, that doesn't work, and then they're forced to try and fix it. That's where real creativity comes from. Can you fix your mistake? Do you have the agility once you've got yourself in that situation to try again? This is why improv comedy, for example, is a great thing to practice if you want to kind of develop those mental skills. I had uh, one of the early founders of Comedy Central, the channel, and that's one bit of advice he gave me. He said, you should try improv because that's a great way of you thinking on your feet and reacting. Because I, I was saying, how do I become more funny? And that was his answer. But anyway, well, I, it obviously didn't work that one. So I guess what, what's really interesting about that is, like, I totally get you when we've been told to gather together, do some brainstorming, put the stuff on a whiteboard and hope we're going to have some really creative ideas. It's almost like, we can switch creativity on or off. There's a switch that goes off. And I'm so against that because I think the best ideas are when you least expect them or when you're doing something else. Like how many of us have come up with great life-changing ideas when we're having a shower? Like I, I have to say that's when I'm most innovative is during those times. So I'd rather say to a team, it's Friday afternoon, we have a challenge and could you ponder over this? for a few days and then let's get back together at some point next week and see what we came up with. And I think 
they have more of a chance of coming up with real meaningful ideas, good ideas, when they're left to it and let them be creative in their own ways. Uh, would you agree with that? No, that's totally correct. So, uh, and talk, I, if you want, I can explain why that's the case. I mean, the main reason that's the case is that because about, you know, 90% or so of the creative muscles in our brain are non-conscious. And that, again, is related to the fact that creativity is not logical. So when you understand how our experience of life is, our experience of life is largely driven by our consciousness, by our sense of awareness. Most of consciousness is driven by vision. Most of what's going on in your consciousness is stuff that you can see. And this gives you this impression that somehow most of your intelligence is conscious and visual. Consciousness and vision are largely logical. The non-conscious parts of your brain, they evolved out of the motor regions, which are about doing actions and trying things, experimental action. And those are all just worrying away deep under the surface of your conscious brain. And so usually the best thing you can do if you want to be creative is take your conscious brain, use it to feed something into your non-conscious brain, a problem, and then just go off and do something else for a while, like exercise or knit or something else or take a shower. And then all that deep power in your brain is going to be working and working and working and working and working on it. And if it's not working fast enough, feed it more stuff. And the thing that really feeds those parts of your brain is stuff that's weird, unusual, distinct. Again, all the things that are different from computers. Computers think in terms of the abstract, the jet world, the universal. If you can feed quirky things into that deep part of your brain, and that's why when you go to a museum or something like that, what you're looking for is what's distinctive, what's special about a work of art. And the more that you have that artist's sensibility of constantly feeding unusual, interesting things that you can't explain, and you're not trying to fit into general rules, into your deep brain, the more it will reward you unexpectedly by kicking out big ideas. So I need to visit more art galleries and museums. I think that's where I'm failing. I guess the piece of research that you did that I came across, and that's how I connected with you, was... This question about can anyone be trained to be creative? Could you tell us a bit more about that research and what were some of the conditions for that research and what were some of the outcomes that you came across? Yeah, so this research is published in the Harvard Business Review in the New York Academy of Sciences. And the first thing I just want to start off by saying is that every human being on Earth is already extremely creative. That's just part of how our brain works. The human species has evolved to be incredibly creative. That's why we're so adaptive. And so all of us are born creative and see this in children's their enormous capacity to imagine and invent. So a lot of what creativity training is, first of all, just getting back in touch with those parts of your brain, because our modern world is logic-based. A study came out of Ohio State, not from my lab, but about a week or so ago, showed that when you give adults a problem, they get better and better at focusing in on a specific method for answering that problem. Whereas children basically try and resolve the problem every time a different way. And what that means is that adults, we get more and more efficient, but we get less and less creative and less open. And so a big part of creativity training is just going back to being a child and saying, I need to back out of my methods because those methods aren't working anymore and I have to re-expand. And so when we do that very basic work, we have seen, we just did a study with the United States Army. It was run by the Army, not by me, by their independent team. And they concluded that as little as two hours of training can effectively increase your IQ by about 14 points when it comes to solving these complex problems, complex open-ended problems. 
simply by just re-engaging those existing parts of your brain. Once you've done that, then there's all these sort of specific tricks like I've been talking about that you can do to kind of start to build on your natural reserve. But the main thing, honestly, is that all of us are a lot more creative already than we're using. And just getting back to that part of ourselves by getting out of the psychology that there is a right answer and that we have to find the answer now instead of being patient, being open and thinking from a broader perspective about why you're doing this in the first place, all of that can kind of activate the sense of openness in your brain and just kind of allow you to access that kind of natural imagination. And so would you say as adults, for us to unlearn some of those blockers for creativity, is that something that's easily and quickly fixable or is that a long journey for us? So yes and no. So what we've discovered is that adults can very rapidly access those parts of their brain. I mean, probably less than an hour, we can get them up and running again. But we also discovered that immediately once adults leave the training, they stop doing it. <laughs> they go back to their old habits. And a kind of classic example of this would be cell phone use. So cell phone use is something that is making you less creative, substantially. Cell phone use is something that's making you a better divergent thinker and is making you a better brainstormer. Because what's coming to you on your cell phone is a ton of random stuff. And that stuff is activating what we call your what curiosity is when you're just interested in stuff. Like, oh, you know, what's that detail? What's that fact? What's that thing? Really what drives creativity is what we call why curiosity. When you go beneath that, you say, why is that happening? And we discovered that the more time people spend on their phones, the less time they're asking why. And the more time they're just making snap judgments about things. They're saying, oh, I, I don't actually need to be curious about this. I already know the answer. You know, it's because that person was stupid or this is correct, you know, or whatever. And so it's not hard for adults to reaccess that part of their brain. But when you think about how hard it is for adults to be off their cell phone for more than about 15 minutes, you start to realize how hard it is for them to consistently use that part of their brain. And so a big part of the work that I do with teams is try to figure out, okay, how can we make more time for that in your routine? Accepting that you're probably not going to stop using your cell phone. Is there two hours at the beginning of the day, which we can kind of preserve as a kind of space for this? Can we figure out how to kind of carve that out and fit that inside the machine of your schedule so you're getting more of that natural creativity? So basically, the short answer is, yes, it's still there. It's very easy to get. But no, it's still very hard for people to use consistently. Got it. That's good news for me. I'll be putting that phone away. So Angus, we're running out of time. I'd love to know if you can recommend some resources, books for anyone who wants to know more and is intrigued by some of the subject matter we've talked about today. Is there some literature that you would recommend? If they're interested in learning more about my kind of rogue theory of creativity and the work I do with you, a special operation, all this kind of stuff. I do have a fairly low-rent website, AngusFletcher.co, which has all the kind of publicly available materials, including the workbook we developed for the U.S. Army, which I think you can get for uh, 99 cents or something off of Amazon. There's also a bunch of publicly available stuff like a Harvard Business Review article and your Cabinet of Sciences. I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm always happy to make a new friend on LinkedIn. But, you know, the main thing I would say is if you really want to understand how creativity works from my perspective, spend more time with a four-year-old or a five-year-old. And spend less of that time judging them and thinking, oh, how inefficient they are. And spend more of your time trying to think like they think. Because the science is that they are much, much more creative than you are. 
And a lot of what you write off as are kind of inefficient and useless behaviors are actually things that are going to help them in 20 or 30 years create a better world. What a great way to end the show, Angus. So find yourself a four-year-old or a five-year-old. And I have to absolutely agree. I see this in my own kids. My son's now 10. And I'm noticing a very big shift in his thinking because he's now much more conscious and self-conscious about his creations and even the conversation I have with him. So already he's starting to lose his creativity, I think. So maybe if I caught that five years earlier why we could have steered him perhaps but hey there's lots of variables outside of our control as parents but what a great piece of advice thank you so much Angus. it's been such an enjoyable conversation i really didn't know what to expect from this episode and i genuinely have to say there are some interesting aspects here that i would love to delve into more so i am going to follow up and read some of the articles on your website and take this further even for my own learning so thank you so so much Thank you, Patty. It's been a pleasure. And anytime you want to chat more, I'm available.